Thank you for listening to sermons by Chaplain Braswell. We hope that you are encouraged by these messages and that God will continue to bless you. And now, today's sermon. Well, good morning. My name is Chaplain Dan Braswell. So glad to be back with you preaching this morning as we continue our series of Listen Up as we go through the Gospel of Mark. Last week, we jumped back in after doing some Christmas sermons and then having our Chapel 101 series. For several months, we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, and it took us through the first the few years of Jesus' ministry. And as Chaplain Ronalds preached last week, if you were here, remember, he preached on the triumphal entry of Jesus. And just to let you know, Easter this year is the first Sunday in April. From last week, Chaplain Ronald's sermon, to my sermon today, For the next several sermons, all the way to Easter, we're going to look at the rest of Mark, Mark chapter 11 to the end of it, and all those sermons are going to focus on one week of the life of Jesus, the final week, the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday we typically call it, we studied last week, and for the next weeks we'll go all the way through the crucifixion and then of course the resurrection on Easter. So I hope that you continue to study through Mark and read it as we look through it together, and I think God has a lot of great things to say to us. Mark chapter 11 is where we're going to be today as we look at at, uh, this subject, fig trees, fruitlessness, and faith, and flipping tables for that matter. We're going to look at that story uh, together as we look look this morning in God's Word. Um, Zion had already read a few verses for us, and I want you to keep those verses in mind, because here's what we're going to do today. We're going to, in just a moment, I'm going to read to you verses 15 through 19 in Mark 11. That's the story of Jesus going in and cleansing the temple, flipping the tables. We're going to look at that. But I also want you to keep in mind what Zion read with the lessons from the fig tree. We're going to look at that together. And as we go through this passage today, I want you to keep your Bibles open, whether that be if you have a hard copy, I hope you have a copy of God's Word with you, or digitally, I want you to stay with me. I'm going to share several passages of Scripture with you, some in the Old Testament, some in the New Testament. So hold on to your Bibles, and if you don't have one, that's okay. You can just simply listen, to, listen as I read them uh, to you. But all of this is going to come together as we look at these lessons to hopefully, as we come to our close this morning, I hope we can answer the question, well, so what? Jesus flipped a table over. What's that about? Jesus cursed a fig tree. What does that have to do with me? So keep your Bible open as we read uh, this passage uh, together, and we'll look at several other passages. I want to go ahead and read it for us. If you stay uh, in Mark chapter 11, start in verse 15. This is after Jesus cleansed the temple. He's already been to the temple one time, we found out earlier, and then he comes back the next day. It says, they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple. And he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and here it is, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? He's quoting from Isaiah. He says, but you have made it a den of robbers. Some of your translations may say a den of thieves. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Verse number 18, and the chief priest and the scribes, they heard it. 
and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Jesus enters Jerusalem as people are gathered for the Jewish feast of Passover. As Zion already read for us, if you look at the earlier verses, it says that Jesus was hungry and he spots a fig tree in leaf. Now, we know the Passover was in the springtime. And I'm not a horticulturist by any means or an expert on figs, but there's plenty of people out there who are that that I could read about. So what I found is that typically, uh, just like figs here, uh, figs in in the Middle East would have really been in bloom ready to eat later in the summer. However, what typically would happen is if you saw the green leaves on the tree, the little buds would come up. It wouldn't be the tastiest time to eat figs because you want them to be right, but you actually, if you were hungry enough and you were traveling, you could go on there and you could get those little buds and, and you, could, you could eat them. But it says that Jesus spots a tree in leaf. This tree draws Jesus' attention because it has, the, it has the, the foliage. It looks like it should have those little buds, but it doesn't. Jesus inspects the tree, and he's disappointed. It has all leaves, but no fruit. So then we find out at the end of it, uh, we just read it earlier, but in verse 20, it talks about that as Jesus, the day prior, had cursed the fig tree, and after he had cleansed the temple, they came back, to the place where the fig tree was, and Peter says, oh, there's your fig tree, and it's cursed, it's, it's withered. This is an interesting set of stories. I call it, it's almost like a fig sandwich, or a reverse fig sandwich, right? Because you got the fig tree, which doesn't really have figs, turn it over the tables, then he comes back to the fig tree. I believe all that's intentional by Mark to, to teach us something. But if, if you're like me, if you've read through Mark, these stories are not... It's kind of like, remember on Sesame Street, I'm dating myself, but back in the day, they'd have that little one of these things is not like the other. When you read these stories at first glance, you have Jesus, the compassionate one who brings the children to himself. Remember that story? All through Mark, what does Jesus do time and time again? He heals people from diseases. You have lepers cleansed. You have blind people who can see, I think, twice in Mark. You have Jesus calming the storm. Jesus' miracles through Mark typically are what we would consider positive. They help people. You have Jesus with this great compassion for people. In one place, he talks to this Syrophoenician woman who's of a, of a different ethnicity, but you see Jesus' love for her. This story is a little different. <laughs> this story, Jesus, he does, it is miraculous in that he miraculously curses the fig tree, but it's not a, it's not a, it doesn't seem very helpful at first glance. You see Jesus going into, the, going into the temple and overturning tables. I, I, I've never had the opportunity to flip a table over on anybody. I don't know if any of you have. If you pin me down, I kind of always wanted to, just to kind of be like Jesus, although I don't think that's exactly what the passage is saying. The passage is not saying, oh, Dan, you get to go flip tables just like Jesus. I don't know what it was like. Did, did Jesus... Um, did, did, it, did it just happen all of a sudden and shock everybody? Did they see the anger in his face? Did he have that righteous indignation? I don't know. But it's interesting that this passage reminds us of something about Jesus. Don't confuse Jesus' meekness with weakness. 
I can't help but think that a, that a congregation like us would, would understand a little something about that. I imagine that there's people here in this congregation who have done things that the nation has called them to that are very compassionate, maybe humanitarian missions. A lot of people, we've done, provided medical care, we've built hospitals, and sometimes the nation calls on us to do those things. Compassionate type assignments, compassionate type missions. However, what do we all say in the Soldiers' Creed? We are all ready to do what? Stand ready to engage and destroy the enemies of the United States of America in close combat. I would think that we of all people would understand that sometimes there's times to be compassionate, but sometimes like Jesus does here, there's times to bring another message. We're going to talk about that this morning as we look at this. The, the, he does two things. He, he curses the fig tree. And then he flips these tables over and brings judgment. Before we look at our four, I'm going to share with you four lessons today I believe we can learn. But I want to say one more thing about the temple before we jump into our our four points. And that is this. We need to understand what we're talking about. Jesus, he has entered Jerusalem on the donkey. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now he goes in and makes this judgment on the temple. When we talk about the temple, I want to remind us of something. We first see the presence of God in the Bible way back in Genesis, where Adam and Eve were in the garden, and what happened? God came and met and talked with them. That was God's presence with with people, right? He he talked with Adam in the cool of the day and Eve. Fast forward a little bit, and he calls Abraham, and as Israel begins to be formed as a nation, there's this tabernacle that they would move around with them as they traveled even through the wilderness, even fast-forwarding to Moses and what would take place. That was where the presence of God would dwell. And that took place for many, many years through the Old Testament. Then you have the great King David, who had a son named Solomon, who did what? He finally built a hard structure, a temple, which, by the way, was in this same area that we're talking about here in Jerusalem. This is the same place Abraham sacrificed, laid his son Isaac on the altar. This is the same place as the first temple was built. And that was what? That was the presence of God. Well, fast forward again, and we have a second temple that is built. And that's the one we're talking about here as Jesus comes into this temple. But I want to remind us before we get too far into this text that we know the rest of the New Testament and we understand what? We understand that now that Jesus has died on the cross and has rose again and ascended back to heaven, and we know through the book of Acts and the rest of Scripture that the presence of God now is not in some specific temple, but rather the presence of God is Jesus Christ, rule and reign, living in you and living in me. One of the things I appreciate about military chapels is we we understand that because this is a structure that we should take care of, this chapel building. However, we know there's all kinds of things that this building is used for. We understand maybe that that we are the temple of God. I know when I was a child growing up in church, I I would hear people say that the terminology like I'm in God's house. And when I was a child, I just kind of thought God hung out through the week and just kind of waited for us to show up on Sundays and like he just kind of, I don't know, sit in the balcony of the church and kind of go, oh, I wonder who's going to come see me today. You know, like that's where God was. And, and God is here with us, obviously, but the New Testament teaches us that God's presence now is, is in you and me through the Holy Spirit. That's important for us, I think, as we look at this passage because we're going to see that God is giving us some lessons that can apply to our lives as he demonstrates that through what he does in this temple here. And I'll pose this question to you now, and we'll come back to it later. If Jesus came to your house, your life, 
what would he see? If Jesus came to your temple, to, to my life, to, to my actions, to my thoughts, to my place that's supposed to be devoted to God's presence, what would he see? As people came to this temple during, during Passover, there was a specific coinage that they would use to pay for the sacrifices. That's what was going on. That's sort of the background here. We know from the Old Testament every Israelite over 40 had to pay a half shekel whenever the people were counted. It was a measure of weight. Now, what the Romans did, remember this is the first century, the Romans, they allowed the Jewish leaders to produce their own coins to fulfill what Moses told them they needed to do. So when the Jewish pilgrims, when they came to Passover, when they came to Jerusalem, they would get these shekels to pay the tax to purchase the animals for sacrifice. Now here was the problem. The problem was that the shekel wasn't recognized as currency anywhere outside the temple complex. Some of you are like me, you've traveled to other countries, and what do you have to do? You have to exchange your cash, at least we have debit cards and credit cards nowadays, but it used to be you had to, you had to get your cash, right? And you'd exchange that cash, and if you came back to the United States, you couldn't use your cash from that other country, you had to what? You had to exchange it back. Same thing here. These exchanges were going on. Also under the first century, the money changers were under control of the high priest. But by the first century, the high priest wasn't necessarily a descendant of Aaron, but rather a Roman-appointed official. And what was happening was Jesus calls them a den of thieves. He calls them robbers. I believe Jesus said that because Jesus knows everything, amen. And he knew there were some dishonest things going on. That's what's going on in this story. With all that said, I want to share with us four lessons that I think we can learn from this story. The four lessons are this. Number one, it's very simple. Jesus judges fruitlessness. Point number one, Jesus judges fruitlessness. As he goes to that fig tree and says, may no one ever eat from you again, it's a judgment. It's similar to, it sounds like something one of the Old Testament prophets would have said. In the Old Testament, in several places, Israel is described as God's vineyard or God's planting. We also know from the Old Testament that the first fruits of the harvest belong to who? They belong to God. There's this language of fruit all through the Old Testament. I want to share with you one passage of Scripture in particular, and I want you to take the time to turn there. We'll come back to Mark 11, but turn to Isaiah chapter 27. Isaiah chapter 27, if you have a copy of your Bible. If not, I will read it to you. In Isaiah 27, I want to show you this, what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 27, 6. He talks about this idea of fruit. Listen to this. He says, In days to come, Jacob shall, Jacob meaning the house of Israel, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots to fill the whole world with fruit. Isaiah is saying to God's people that the real purpose of Israel is not simply to build a nation, but it is to be a blessing to all people. Jesus is judging this fruitlessness. Now, I also want you to turn over to the next book in the Bible. It's over to Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 8. And we're going to look at verses 12 through 13 because Jeremiah does something very similar 
in his idea of judgment. What I'm trying to show you is that Jesus judges fruitlessness, but this idea of judgment comes through all of Scripture. I'm saying this because it's important for us to understand that we live in a world that says, oh, we don't judge anything. But let me remind us, God is our judge. That's my first name, Daniel in Hebrew. That means God is my judge, but, he, but he's, all our, he's all our judges. Look at uh, Jeremiah chapter 8, verses 12 through 13, this idea of judgment. Look at what it says. Jeremiah, he says, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? He says, no, they were not at all ashamed. And he says this, they did not know how to blush. In other words, it's gotten so bad, the prophet is saying, that not only are they committing sin, but when they get caught committing sin, there's no shame. What a sad commentary. It sounds like it came right off of Facebook this morning, doesn't it? Where, where people are so wicked that we don't even blush about it anymore. And here's what he says about them in Jeremiah 8, the last part of verse 12. Therefore they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown. Look at verse 13. Then I would gather them, declares the Lord. There are no grapes on the vine. Fruitlessness, right? No figs on the fig tree. Sound familiar? Even the leaves are withered. Again, sound familiar? And what I gave them has passed away from them. Jesus is, is fulfilling essentially what the prophets were teaching all along, is that God will judge fruitlessness. The temple had gotten away from its original purpose of worshiping God and being a blessing to the nations and being a blessing to people. He was using that fig tree to teach that you can be as flowery as you want and have all these leaves, but if there's no fruit, God will bring judgment. I want to show you one more Old Testament passage before we, before we move on. And you're just going to keep, keep flipping to the right or use your, use your app. Either way, I want you to turn to Hosea chapter 9. Hosea chapter 9. Again, the reason we're looking at these is I want us to understand this idea that God judges fruitlessness. This idea of judgment has been throughout Scripture. Hosea chapter 9. Listen to the verse 10 in, in Hosea 9. He says this, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel, like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season. There it is, I saw your fathers. And then it says, but they came to Baal, Peor, means they worship false gods, consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing that they love. Now, go down to verse number 16 and what it says. It uses the word Ephraim, but that really means Israel, northern Israel. It says, Ephraim is stricken, and their root is dried up, and they shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. What strong words. Verse 17, my God will reject them because they have not listened to him, and they shall be wanderers among the nation. God is saying he's going to bring judgment to Israel. He's going to make them barren. He's going to make them fruitless. Let's go back to Mark chapter 11 and, and stay there for just a moment. In Mark chapter 11, what we just read earlier, he, he quotes Isaiah 56, and he says, you are the house is be called a house of prayer, but then he says, you've made it a den of thieves. We won't take time to turn there, but I'll just give you the reference. In Jeremiah chapter 7, he uses that exact language. 
In, in, in Jeremiah 7, verse 11, he calls the temple a den of robbers. And as you read Jeremiah 7, another prophecy, what it essentially says is Jeremiah says that the people think because they're showing up at the temple and doing the temple things that they're going to be right with God. Jesus quotes that as he overturns the tables, as Jesus drives everybody out. And by the way, this was all happening at the, if you've ever seen a picture of the first century temple, this is the outer circle, what they would call the court of the Gentiles. That's where all this buying and selling was taking place. And that's where Jesus used the term, a den of thieves. And he's making a comparison, like the people in Jeremiah's day, the people around Jesus in this passage in Mark 11 thought their temple could shield them in some way from God. But Jesus makes it clear that no earthly sanctuary, nothing we do on earth, is sufficient to pardon people's sins. Only the blood of Jesus. Only the blood of Jesus. The problem was that during this day, the religious leaders and most of the people, they refused to recognize God's presence and power in Jesus. I can't help but think of John chapter 1 where, where John says he came to his own and his own did not receive him. The first lesson I want you to see from the fig tree is that God judges fruitlessness. You and I, we can come to chapel, we can go to Bible studies, but it's comforting yet it's also frightening. I've heard people say, oh, you can't judge me because God knows my heart. Well, in one sense, that's comforting. But in another sense, the fact that God knows my heart, quite frankly, scares me, to, scares me like crazy. And I hope it does you too. God is, is, is calling us to serve him. We know from the New Testament that we're not saved by our works. We can't work enough to be right with God. We're saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross and he rose again, and through faith in him, we're saved. But God is calling his people to bear fruit. God is calling his people to prioritize as he does. So that's lesson number one, Jesus judges fruitlessness. Number two is this, though. Jesus prioritizes prayer. Very simply, we're back in Mark 11. Jesus wants you and I to be people of prayer. He wants us to be people of prayer. Go back and look at Mark 11 at the centerpiece, I believe, of what Jesus says. He says in verse 17, it says, He was teaching them. This is after he's made the scene, he's turned the tables over, he sent the buyers and the sellers out, and he won't even let anybody walk through, and then he makes this statement. Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? For this to make sense, I want to look at Isaiah 56 because this, that's exactly where Jesus gets this quote from. So turn to Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah 56 is where Jesus quotes this from, this idea of prayer. And I want you to see it. And we'll come back to this passage later on, but I want to point one thing out to you right now. Look at Isaiah 56 starting in verse 6. Listen to what he says. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. He says this, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and watch this, make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. 
Here it is. For my people shall be called a house of prayer for what? For all nations. Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, talking about prioritizing prayer. Now, remember what we said about the temple at the beginning of our message today. This is the first century temple. We understand that. Jesus is telling these people, this place needs to be a house of prayer. But do you know the extension of that teaching for us? He wants you and I to be people of prayer. Certainly, he wants our chapel services to be filled with prayer. Yes. He wants our Bible studies to be filled with prayer. Absolutely. But he wants you and I to be focused and to be a people of prayer. He wants us to know his presence through a relationship, a vibrant relationship with him. Now, I want to show you something. I want you to go to Hebrews with me, chapter 9. This is a New Testament passage we're going to look at together that's going to teach us something about this idea of prayer and and the temple and things. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. He's going to talk about redemption through Christ in verse 11. I want want to read it to you. Hebrews 9, 11. Look at this. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of creation, verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy place. You got the temple language. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves. They were sacrificing in the first century, but he says but by means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. Now, if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of piercings with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, he says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And in Hebrews chapter 4, we won't turn there, but The author of Hebrews makes this statement, we can come boldly before the throne of God. Jesus' righteous indignation in part of flipping the tables over, and it says he was teaching them, he specifically says part of the reason he did that is because he wants his people to be people of prayer. If if Jesus came to your life and into mine, to our temple as we're supposed to be God's presence, represented in us, God's temple, God living in us, how would our prayer life be? Jesus is calling us to be people of prayer. Lesson number three. Lesson number three in this is that Jesus cares about people and their fruit. Jesus cares about people and their fruit. To see this, I want you to look back at Isaiah 56 one one more time. And this will be the last time we turn there. Isaiah chapter 56, I want to show you two things out of there that carry this idea. Jesus says in this passage that there to be, what, a house of prayer, but a house of prayer for who? For all nations. The point was that Jesus saw the temple and its focus was not other people. Its focus was inward, buying and selling and all these sorts of things. It wasn't on reaching the nations. Look at what Isaiah 56 has to say. He says in verse 3, watch this. He says, Let not the foreigner who's joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And watch this. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. In other words, for the foreigners who are brought in, he says, No, they're going to be my people. Because that's the point, to draw people to himself. He's saying about the eunuchs, maybe someone who, who it says, behold, I'm a dry tree. The, the idea is like, I'm, I'm barren. 
or maybe I'm imperfect. He's saying, no, no. He said, now you're my people. Watch this. Look at verse uh, 5. He says, I'll give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. He's saying that the people who used to be on the outside are now going to be part of God's people. And in that same chapter is where he says, my house will be a house of prayer for who? For all nations. We won't take time to turn there, but when Solomon dedicated the temple, there's a beautiful prayer that Scripture records for us. And he's, in that prayer, he prays that the foreigner who comes from a distant land because of God's name, that they will hear that great name and outstretched arm, and they will come and pray toward the temple. Solomon is reminding us that that's the whole point. And when Jesus judges the fruitlessness, he wants them to be people of prayer, but, but he wants them to understand that it's all about reaching others. Jesus cares about people. He's in the people business. And guess what? You and I are too. God is calling you and I to not be inward focused, but to look outward and be a, be a people for all the nations. God is calling us to be outward focused. God is calling us to reach others. Who are people in your life that you need to point to Jesus? Who do you work with that as you look at them, you can't help but think, God's calling me to be a house of prayer for all the nations. There's one sitting right beside me who I know is not a Christian. How is God calling you to be a blessing to them? How is God calling you to witness to them? I can't help but think about Ephesians 2.10, which I've noticed several of our chaplains, it's one of our favorite verses to go back to, and, and I'm going to do it as well. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And part of that is caring about people. Part of that is understanding our greater goal is not just to say, I'm a Christian, but God, use me for your glory as I'm a blessing to the world around me. And then our final lesson is this. It's very simple. It's the so what. Jesus' lessons will always invoke a response. Jesus' lessons will always invoke a response. I want you to look at that response. I'm back in Mark, and we're not going to turn to any other passages uh, this morning, but I want you to look at Mark 11, our original text, verse 18. Here's what the chief priests and scribes did. It says, they heard it, that is, they heard his teaching, they saw what he did, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And then we won't look at it, but if you kept looking at the rest of the chapter, the very next thing the chief priests and scribes do is challenge Jesus' authority. It's interesting to me that when the chief priests are confronted with their sins, the first thing they want to do is challenge Jesus and challenge his authority. Jesus has flipped the tables on them and has made them fearful. I can't help but think because they know what they're doing is wrong. And their response was not repentance. Their response was not, oh, I'm, oh God, I'm so sorry. Their response was anger and fear because it was going to hurt their plans, and what they thought was right. So the question is this, what table might Jesus flip in your life? 
This table in our story, it was money. It was being dishonest. It was, it was thievery. But what might those tables be for you and for me? Could it be pornography? That Jesus comes over that table and says, no, get this out of here. You're to be about serving me. Could it be some other sexual sin where Jesus flips that table? Could it be a little more subtle? Could it be jealousy? And I've lived my life just being jealous of someone else or some other circumstance. Could Jesus come along and, and get my attention and, and bring, that, bring that judgment? And by the way, Jesus doesn't bring this judgment just for condemnation. He's, he's gracious. He tells the disciples, no, have faith in God. He says in the, in the other part of the chapter. Could that table be pride? I, I have it all together. Everything I do is right. I can't possibly be wrong. What are you going to do when Jesus flips that table over on you? Maybe it's finances. A pastor one time said you can tell a lot about a Christian by how they spend their money. Maybe God's coming along and flipping that table. What do we do? Maybe we're fearful like the scribes and the Pharisees because we know that's going to require us to give, let go of the reins. It's going to require us to line my life up with that of Jesus Christ. Maybe our table is just simple self-reliance. I just recently went through a reach training that uh, several of you probably are starting to be familiar with. And one of the quotes that was interesting to me was that reach training's goal is to, is to let soldiers know that there are ways they can reach out when they need help. But one of the statistics that they brought up was that 77% of the soldiers asked, why don't you reach out for help? 70% of us said, because we want to be self-reliant. Uh, maybe, maybe for us, as, as Jesus looks at us and he sees our pretty leaves and he sees our lives, maybe what he's trying to flip over in my life is, hey, Dan, quit being so self-reliant. How about rely on me for a change? Maybe some of you, that's what needs to be flipped over. And the question is, what are you and I going to do when that table is flipped? I'm going to ask our instruments, Greg, if you and the team will just go ahead and come up and, and we're going to sing together in just a moment. But I want to take just a moment to pray for you. And I'd ask you just to bow your head and close your eyes. And I want to end our sermon this morning by, by saying a prayer for you. And we're not going to have an altar call. I'm not going to ask anybody to come up front. I simply want to help, help for you to help me to pray for you. If you're here today, and you would simply say, I know God is trying to get my attention, and he wants some changes in my life. Would you pray for me that I would obey God? Would you just slip your hand up? And you're just simply saying, I know there's some things in my life that God wants me to change. Would you just slip your hand up so I can pray for you? And my hand's up as well. We're just symbolically right now with our hands up saying to the Lord, God, I know that there's some things you're wanting to flip in my life. And I know there's some things I need to line up with your will. Would you just slip that hand up and, and, and take just a moment right now in your own heart and say, God, help me to be a person of prayer, a person of faith. God, I give this area of my life to you. Would you just pray in the silence of these moments right now for that? Heavenly Father, with our hands lifted, more importantly, our hearts toward you, I pray 
that we would hear your Holy Spirit. God, we know that we're to be your temple. We know your scripture says, what know you not that your body is a temple of God? And God, as you sweep our house and look at our lives, we don't want to be found doing things that are sinful and and not in accordance with your will. And right now, I pray on behalf of all your people, I pray that you would search our hearts and those areas, God, where you flipped the tables, those areas where it startled us or it made us fearful or it convicted us. God, I pray that we would repent of our sins and that we would turn to you. God, I pray for your mercy. We know that you're a God who abundantly pardons. God, I also want to say a prayer for those who may be here today and maybe they've never trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. God, I pray that if someone here is lost, that has never placed their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, I pray that they would seek your face and would know just as simply as John 3.16 says, God, that whoever believes in you will not perish but have everlasting life. God, be with us as we sing about worshiping your holy name. May it not just be a song, but may it be something we take from this place and be your temple and continue to be conformed to the image that is your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.